So welcome to uh, the next of our series of lectures. Um, as always, I would like to uh, thank our sponsors, uh, Jose Andres, who actually talked here uh, a week or two ago, uh, Think Food Group, Alicia for both financial and intellectual help, uh, Montferrand, uh, Whole Foods on River Street, which uh, supplies all the food and all the lab supplies because we eat our labs. Uh, Fusion Chef by uh, Julabo uh, supplies the immersion cookers and the bank from Catalonia, the, some extra support. Um, so um, we have, uh, looking forward, uh, on the 31st, we have Karma Ruscadella, um, who uh, has a wonderful restaurant near Barcelona. Um, and she's going to tell us something about browning. On the, uh, on the 7th, I think, which is the next one, next slide. Yeah, on November 7th, uh, Dan Barber uh, from New York, uh, Reclaiming Flavor. And uh, then tonight, sorry for the slides, tonight uh, we'll have uh, Wiley Dufresne uh, from WD50. Um, uh, but before we do that, we're going to have a slight change in our science talk, and we're going to have a real expert uh, talking about it, not, uh, not me. Um, so we're lucky. We have uh, Greg Verdine from uh, the Department of Chemistry who will do the introductory science uh, lecture uh, this week. Greg. Well, thank, thank you very much. Um, I usually teach organic chemistry uh, to pre-medical, mostly to pre-medical students in this, uh, in this classroom. And it's in the, the combination of the blood red uh, chairs and, and the very difficult subject matter, I think tends to instill spear, uh, fear in the, uh, the faces of the, that I'm used to looking out to. So it's really great to see all of you looking very happy. And I don't see any fear. <laughs> at all. I think you're looking forward and saying, holy mackerel, Greg looks kind of scared. Uh, and uh, I, I, uh, I haven't given a lecture to the general public for, oh, 10 years or so. So it's really, really a privilege. The last one that I gave was here in the Science Center. I should tell you, since the head of the Charles was this past weekend, I have a particularly fond memory of this classroom. And it was um, the, the last class of organic chemistry before the head of the Charles Regatta. And I was up here talking about some uh, esoteric subject in organic chemistry. And through the back door right over there came an entire bevy of streakers from Yale University. <laughs> now it just so happened that that class like this one was kind of oversubscribed. And there were people lining the entire uh, stairway all the way up to the back of the classroom. Those of you who are familiar with streaking know that the point of streaking is to move fast. <laughs> and uh, I dare say the um, Yale students didn't move fast <laughs> and uh, they left organic chemistry humiliated even further. So that was, that was, really, uh, that was really special. Uh, so t today what I'd like to talk about for the next 20, 
20 minutes or so is, uh, is to try to give you a primer on proteins. And I'll, uh, my, the problem that I have is I work on this subject every single day of my life. So uh, if I lapse into jargon or if something's not clear, I would encourage you to raise your hand, and I'm sure you're not the only person who's um, wondering what the other person is thinking. So I'm happy to uh, have this be as conversational as possible. And if, as I t tend to do, is look down here to the first few rows, and I'm not calling you up there, just please yell out, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll get to your question. So proteins are obviously a major source of nutrition. Humans, over the course of evolution, have lost the ability to make eight out of the 20 amino acids. Uh, we can only synthesize from simple precursors uh, 12 of the 20 amino acids, and that means that we have to get the other uh, eight amino acids, either from the breakdown of proteins in your stomach by acidic digestion uh, in your stomach, or by uh, bacteria that reside in your digestive tract. It turns out that the bacteria that reside in your digestive tract are really master constructionists of all kinds of things, um, and uh, they're able to supply us with the amino acids by, by synthesizing them from simple precursors. Uh, shown on this slide are a series of different proteins that are, are, are of relevance to food, and I'll go through several of these and give you some idea of uh, why, they're, why they're of interest. Uh, what, what proteins are doing for the most part in biology is they're the real workhorses. They're the doers. They're the constructionists. They make stuff. Uh, they're also the building blocks of, of uh, many cellular components. If you look at muscle, most of muscle is protein, and that protein is doing stuff. It's contracting. It's moving. Uh, proteins are the, are the things in the cell that do what's called signaling. So if something happens on the outside of the cell and, and the inside of the cell needs to know that it's happening on the outside, it's proteins that are transmitting all of that information. So they're the information carriers. So they serve a really important role in biology. With respect to food, um, this uh, protein is called hemoglobin, and it has a red color because it has an iron center in it. it has a, 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 each hemoglobin protein has a single atom of the, uh, of the uh, metal iron. And that iron turns out to be red colored. Uh, and, and of course, this is an oxygen carrier. So in highly oxygenated tissues, tissues like the brain, tissues like muscle that, that are consuming a lot of oxygen in order to do work, these have a lot of blood supply and therefore have a lot of hemoglobin, and it's for that reason um, that they're red. Also shown here is casein. The purpose of milk uh, in mammals is to emulsify nutrients, primarily fat, but also proteins as well. And the problem with fat is that it doesn't dissolve in water. So uh, th there'd be no way for a mother to transfer nutrients to her offspring without emulsifying the nutrient fat, which is obviously a high-calorie nutrient. And it's casein that does this emulsification. Albumin is a, is a constituent. It's actually the most uh, predominant protein in our bloodstream where it's used to carry fats and carry other molecules. And 
um, in eggs as well, albumin is the major constituent of the whites, where again, it's used to, um, as a storage depot for uh, nutrients. And uh, renin, as you'll see, this is a protein that's uh, made in the digestive tra tract of cows and other animals as well. And it's used to break down casein that's, uh, that's, um, that's produced in milk. It's used to break down all kinds of, all kinds of things. And in cheese manufacturing, this is used essentially as a manufacturing component to break down casein to produce cheese. So let me tell you a little bit about what, a, I know you've all heard about proteins. I want to give you just a quick primer on what a protein actually looks like. So proteins, first of all, are linear polymers. So what this means is that they have a structure that can be thought of as being like beads on a string, where if you could, if you could uh, start right here and walk along the central chain of a protein, you would keep uh, repeating the same, you would keep experiencing like Groundhog Day, the same thing over and over and over again as you walk along the chain. So it's a repeating polymer. And uh, the repeating units are actually amino acids, the thing that I just mentioned a moment ago, that um, there are 20 primary amino acids that are used in all organisms on Earth. Now, in, in terms of chemical structure, when a protein is made from amino acids, those uh, individual amino acids become linked together. They become linked together through strong bonds that are called by chemists covalent bonds. These bonds are so strong that they don't undergo uh, just spontaneous breakage in a, in a way. It, it, the proteins were known for 50 years before anyone was patient enough to be able to measure a pe a, a, one of these bonds undergoing a breakage. So they're extremely stable under ordinary circumstances. Um, the, the bond that I'm referring to is right here. It's called a peptide bond or an amide bond, and I only mention it. It will come up later, and it links the amino of the amino acid to the acid of the neighbor next door. So it goes amino to acid, amino to acid, amino to acid, repeating unit, building up a chain. Now, if you saw only this, you'd think that uh, every bead on the string is identical, but in fact, that's not the case. Amino acids are different from one another. And what di differs are these green things that project from the main chain, the repeating chain of the protein. So there are groups that dangle off of this uh, main chain and that give each protein its very, very characteristic structure. So you can think of these as the decorations. Think of a chain that has not one type of bead, but has 20 types of beads. Now think about the combinations. If you have 20 beads, let's say here, and you have 20 there, that's 400. And then you have 20 in the next one, that's 8,000. There are a huge number of different uh, possible structures of proteins. And what we know is that in evolution, the entire biosphere has sampled only a tiny, 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 infinitesimally small fraction of uh, the entire possible universe of all proteins. 
So when you read science fiction and you, and you learn that, well, we might go to another planet and find a life form that's based on silicon, that's kind of unlikely. <laughs> it's very unlikely um, because there's something that's really uniquely good about carbon and maybe, you know, at, uh, with drinks out in the back of the thing, we can talk about that. But what could well be different is that there could be life forms that have a completely different universe of protein from the proteins that we happen to use and evolve here. So this is, one of, this is just showing one of these amino acids. This is one that's known as tryptophan. The amino acids are often used not only to build proteins, but to build things like neurotransmitters. So tryptophan is used to build the neurotransmitter serotonin. So there are different flavors of these amino acids, and they have very particular roles. And so the flavors have uh, a, a chemistry associated with them. So shown here are the two residue, two amino acid side chains that are acidic. You've all heard the term, know what an acid is. They literally are exactly that. They donate protons. And uh, there are other amino acid residues that are basic. These, these like to pick up protons. And um, these things are colored blue, and, and this blue to, to scientists denotes that they have a charge on them. So these basic amino acids are positively charged, and they tend to bind negatively charged things. Any of you who ever has had surgery and had a heparin lock installed to, uh, before you went into surgery, heparin is negatively charged, and it binds positive charges on the proteins in your bloodstream that are involved in coagulation. And by, by virtue of that sticking of positive charges on proteins to negative charges on heparin, it blocks coagulation of blood. So from this small vignette, you get the notion that it's all about stickiness. These side chains give a particular type of sticky character that allows a protein to stick to its intended biological partner, but not to stick to things that it's not supposed to stick to. There are other amino acids, and their names are all given here. I won't go into them individually. And uh, these actually don't like to stick to anything. They, they just like to stick to water. So you can think of them as being kind of lubricants. They provide a layer of uh, just water-loving stuff on the outside of the protein. There's one other amino acid that has a very special role, and this one is called cysteine. Cysteine, this is an individual amino acid cysteine, and when these occur in pairs and they end up close to each other, they like to undergo a chemical reaction that's called oxidation. And this oxidation forms a bond between the two cysteines. That bond is extremely strong. So if you try to pull on the two parts that just become bonded together, you can't separate them without nuclear energy or something like that. It would require destru huge destructive force. You'd have to rip apart the molecule to break this bond. So these, um, these things impart rigidity. And you're going to be hearing in Wiley's talk how important, how important cross-linking is in doing architectural things on proteins. Nature's version of cross-linking is shown right here. Any of you who've, who's ever had a perm, uh, in your hair you have these kinds of bonds. 
and it turns out that there's a special chemical way to reduce them. It smells horrific. Um, and so there's a special way to reverse this by treating it with chemicals that break open these bonds. And then there's another chemical that reforms them. So if you take the hair and you break open these bonds, you can mold it into various kinds of curly shapes. When you reform those bonds, they tend, the hair tends to keep its curl. So it's these bonds that cause, that allow um, the reformation of hair in, uh, in, in, uh, in cosmetics. These things, these disulfides are very important for the structural integrity of proteins. This is a protein that binds insulin. It's called the insulin receptor. This is a, a neat little bomb that's it's from a scorpion toxin. So it's the, it has one, two, three of these disulfide bonds. And so this actually is made by the scorpion. It binds potassium channels and causes paralysis in uh, what, whatever uh, has received this dosage of scorpion toxin. Okay, so I've talked about three types, negatively charged, positively charged, and just water-loving. I talked about cross-linking amino, amino acid cysteines, but I didn't talk about the amino acids yet that really give proteins their distinctive shape. And it's the set of amino acids that are water-hating. They're called hydrophobic. These, um, these amino acids you can think of as being a little oil droplet, having the equivalent, uh, equivalent of a little oil droplet on their surface. You all know that oil and water separate. So these residues repel water. They force it to get off, get off of my surface. And uh, so here's just illustrating that. These are called hydrophobic residues. And when they force the water off of their surface, that allows them to come together and to form a, uh, a cluster. And it's that clustering of these uh, hydrophobic residues <coughs> that is really critical for giving proteins their shape. So just shown here are a series of the amino acids, of the hydrophobic amino acids I won't go into them in, in, uh, in any particular detail. There's one last set that I needed to mention, and these I like to call shapeshifters. Um, if you're going to take this um, beads on a string and allow these hydrophobic residues to coalesce so that you can form a three-dimensional shape, sometimes it's necessary to create kinks in, in the chain in order to allow the chain to reverse on itself and the residue proline creates kinks in the chain. Sometimes the chain already is too kinked and you need to make it relaxed and it's the amino acid um, glycine that is the most flexible of all amino acid residues on a protein. So that's the, uh, the cast of characters for the am amino acids and their individual roles. Now, when scientists look at proteins, they represent each amino acid uh, as by a letter code. Now, some of these are kind of funny because, you know, we have A, B, C, D, we have 26 letters, and not every amino acid corresponds neatly with a, uh, with a letter. So if you have cysteine, it's pretty obvious that it's going to be C, or alanine, it's going to be A. But what do you do with tryptophan? 
all right, because there's already a, an amino acid called tyrosine that's taken T. So what do you do? So basically what we've done with tryptophan is we sort of say it funny, we say twiptophan, and we give it a W instead. <laughs> Life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. Um, so this, this kind of code, this is the code for the sequence of beads on a string, the 20 amino acids, as you start from one end of the protein right here and move all the way to the other end of the protein right there. And scientists can use this code. This is the distinctive, if you have this code of a protein, you know what it is, and now increasingly know, we know what its structure is. Now, with respect to structure, all proteins, well, the vast, vast majority defined into fold. In a, in a way, if you think of origami or any other folding exercise, these undergo a specific folding event to give characteristic three-dimensional shapes. So several of these are shown here. You can see that looks very different from that, which looks very different from that. In fact, this protein, you can see, it looks like this lobe here looks a lot like that lobe, which looks a lot like that lobe, which looks a lot like this. This is, in fact, a protein that's assembled four units of the same protein into one assembly, and that happens as well. Now, here's, I'm just going to show you a very schematic diagram of how proteins fold. So this would be the chain before a protein folds, and uh, you have these hydrophobic amino or, or water uh, hating residues, they cluster on the interior of the protein. They cluster with each other, as shown here, and the residues on the outside are all interacting with water or interacting with other things. For example, if this is a protein that's involved in regulating your genes, it might interact with DNA, and then it would have a surface that is chemically uh, constructed to, to interact with DNA. Uh, and so this is just to illustrate, this is now the, the, the outer surface of the protein. Now, I've been um, showing you the equivalent of saying, oh, let me show you a person, then I show you a skeleton. That's what I've been doing when I've been showing you structures of proteins. I've been showing you the skeleton. And scientists use this skeletal representation just to make things easy. So this is one of these types of skeletal representations. But if you actually fill in all the amino acids, um, you can see that it becomes much, much more uh, crowded in terms of information content. Even this isn't what, if you were a protein and you came up to look at this protein, it wouldn't look like that. It would look like, sorry, it would look like this. You wouldn't see any individual feature of anything. But as you can tell, this is almost impossible for scientists to work with this and, uh, and, and get much information from it because it's really just the outer surface without showing the inner core. It would be like diagnosing a disease in a person if you didn't have x-rays or MRI or whatever. So these other techniques allow us to look into the interior of a protein and understand what's going on inside. And in, in cases where proteins interact with each other in biology, this one surface of one protein finds a mate in the surface of the other protein. They're matched. For example, one's negatively charged, one's positive, and they come together. Now, for the purpose of cooking, 
<laughs> I know you're wondering, when the hell am I going to get back to cooking? Okay, all right, sorry. Um, so for the purpose of cooking, um, it's important to know that our bodies are at 98.6 degrees temperature. There is no evolutionary driving force for the proteins in our body to be stable at 150 degrees. The evolutionary driving force has been to make proteins stable at the temperature of the organism that has evolved them. And so for that reason, proteins, just as I mentioned, they can fold, they can also unfold. And protein unfolding is extremely interesting and is used by cooks to do all kinds of phenomenal uh, acrobatic feats. So the, some of the things that can um, denature, this is called denaturing when you unfold a protein. So if you shock it with acid or base, for example, you can unfold a protein. If you shear it using mechanical shear forces that tend to pull on the ends of the molecule, you can rip it apart by, uh, by shear forces. Um, bubbles create um, surface tension that when the proteins sit on the edge of this, the surface tension of the bubble can pull a protein apart. Detergents, remember I mentioned that the inside of a protein has all these hydrophobic residues clustering together. And when you treat a protein with detergent, it insinuates into the interior of the protein and binds all of those hydrophobic things and blows up the protein, basically. And then uh, salts, and, and maybe mo most familiar to all of you, is heat using cooking, the temperature of thermal denaturation, thermal unfolding, to cause proteins to lose their fold. So I'm going to show you a couple videos. These are actually um, the, these are what, what are called molecular dynamics simulations. So what these do is they take a, a model, a computational model of a protein, and they computationally add heat to it. So we can do this. It requires supercomputers and a tremendous amount of computing uh, sophistication. And this is now, this is just a one basic um, element, a architectural element of a protein that's called an alpha helix. You may know this was first predicted by the Nobel laureate Linus Pauling. And I'm going to show you what happens computationally in the computer when you take this and add heat to it. So there it is. It started as this very regular coiled shape, and now it's gone. And the other important thing is, whereas the coiled shape, what we started with, sorry, uh, what we started with has one structure, right? It's a coiled structure. When you go to, when you heat this up, it goes to many, many different structures. So it goes to a large ensemble of many, many different structures. And what happens when this thing unfolds this way, it exposes all of those hydrophobic residues and neighboring molecules, there's just shown one here, but neighbors get together and stick and coalesce into an, an, an aggregate. And it's, it's for that reason that when you heat up proteins, they unfold and they solidify. They form large, ordinary, most proteins are uh, about one ten thousandth the size of what can be seen with the naked eye. So it requires many, 
millions, hundreds of thousands to millions of protein molecules to get to something that would actually be visible by your eye. I'll show you another one. So I'll only say one thing about what I do, but uh, what, what, what my lab does here at Harvard is we've discovered ways of preventing these small building blocks of proteins from unfolding. And it turns out that when you prevent them from unfolding, they, they uh, acquire very, very useful pharmaceutical properties. So the f one of these uh, types of molecules has this uh, brace built into it that prevents it from unraveling. And uh, ne next year, two of these uh, molecules on the left-hand side will be going into testing in cancer patients as a next-generation cancer therapeutic. So if you look on the left, if you look on the left, you can see this thing is retaining its coiled structure. If you look on the right, you can see that without the brace, the cyan-colored brace on it, this thing is you know, waving around between many, many different structures. This is actually on YouTube, so. <laughs> now I'm going to show you how an, how an egg turns white. So uh, this is, this is uh, I'll finish up in a minute, Wiley. So, uh, so th now I've just shown you a little building block of a protein. Now I'm going to blow up an entire protein. Um, so I'm going to take albumin, for human albumin, uh, not chicken egg white albumin, although it's almost identical. And we're going to take this and, in, and computationally add heat to it. And what you're going to see, I want you to focus your attention up here in particular, and you're going to see that very early on in this computational simulation, this thing is going to come completely unfolded. So now we're heating up albumin. You can see up here, this is unfolded, dangling off. And if there's another albumin nearby, these guys stick to each other. And then as they start to stick, they build up larger and larger and larger aggregates. And in the frying pan, the egg turns white. So uh, I, I wanted to mention collagen. Collagen is uh, a, a structural component of cells. It's used um, in, in all cell types to confer rigidity in all tissues. And this can be broken down into gelatin, which is uh, basically a, a more manageable form, a more soluble form of collagen. Um, it can be used, for example, to make gummy bears, which are a favorite of my children. Um, uh, there are also enzymes that are important, and now, you're, now we're transitioning to Wiley's talk because this is the genius of what Wiley's done is to begin to use these types of enzymes which are provided by nature to use them essentially synthetically to make uh, fantastic culinary creations. So this is one which actually just so happens to be a nuisance. It causes browning um, of food. In the manufacture of cheese, there's an enzyme called renin, which uh, is extracted from the digestive tract of cows, and it's, it's added to uh, milk in order to chop up the, um, 
the, the proteins in, in, the, uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the milk, and that causes set phase separation. So the fat and the protein come together, and the rest of the stuff separates out. So what this does is it chops protein chains, as shown here. And uh, that, that's what allows you to create curd and whey. And uh, transglutaminase, which uh, you're going to be hearing more about in a moment, transglutaminase takes, it doesn't chop, first of all, it builds new bonds. It does a cross-linking reaction. And what it does is to take two different amino acid side chains and connect them together. And so that's a cross-linking enzyme that actually forms bonds. And Wiley uh, has used this to deconstruct the protein in shrimp and then rebuild that into a, into a solid matter by using this enzyme to regenerate the architectural structure of a, of a solid protein. So I'd like to, I'm going to end there. I hope there wasn't too much organic chemistry uh, in that talk. And I did want to thank John and Pia um, for their help in putting this together and to thank Eric Smith, who's uh, my, uh, my graphics guru, who, uh, who helped also to put together a lot of the, uh, the graphics that I showed you today. So David, should I, uh, should, should I take questions or, uh, or we just move right on? Okay, thank you very much. Hello, everybody. Um, that was pretty neat. I took a few notes. I'm, uh, I'm curious to start cooking with detergent. I thought that was an interesting <laughs> idea. I think like chicken marinated in downy or something could be really interesting. So I'm, I'm, uh, that's my first recipe to try when we get home. Um, uh, I, I, I want to first start by saying thank you uh, to everybody for coming out uh, this evening. I want to say thank you to Harvard for having us back again to talk about uh, transglutaminase. Um, uh, you, you can just pause that for one sec if you don't mind. Um, I want to thank uh, uh, Professor Weitz, Professor Vernon. I want to thank John uh, for his help and, and everybody else uh, here at Harvard that's been supporting us uh, throughout the year uh, and encouraging us uh, to work with this stuff to help explain it to us better. Um, I want to thank uh, John McCarthy, who has uh, been my, my sole R&D guy for the last, uh, I don't know, probably at least a year or so, maybe two, year and a half, um, wor working as an army of one to help us uh, you know, further our work with Miklu. He, uh, he's about to be leaving us to be uh, opening up a restaurant of his own in the new year, so congratulations to him. That's pretty, I'm happy for him, and his job will be available to any of you out there that are interested. <laughs> You can talk to him about what that might might entail and be like, and if it's worth worth the effort. Um, but uh, before I talk about uh, Miklu specifically, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about WD50 and explain uh, a little bit about the restaurant and 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 how it came about, because I think that 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 sort of segues into um, our our work, our relationship with with uh, transglutaminase, or as we like to refer to it, Miklu. But we'll talk about. The value of the name uh, in a little bit. Um, WD50 is is my restaurant. We're almost nine years old. We're, we're located on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and um, 
it, it was started with an, with a lot of ideas. Obviously, it was a restaurant. We wanted to make food and, and have you guys in and, 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 and take your money. Um, but, but really, uh, one, one of the things that, that people don't really think about when they think about opening a restaurant was something that, that, that I want to do was to create a place where I could continue my education as a cook. I, um, I went to cooking school. I, I, I went to a very good cooking school uh, in New York City. I worked for some great chefs. Uh, I, I sort of did everything that you were supposed to do as a young cook. Um, I followed all the rules. I, I didn't ask a lot of questions. I just simply did, did what I was meant to do um, and be, began cooking and learning. And I, and I became very skilled. I, I, had, I knew how to roast a chicken. I knew how to uh, boil a fish. I knew how to poach an egg. I knew how to, to do all these things. Uh, but I didn't, uh, as I got older and I began to, to be in a position to ask questions, I began to realize that I knew how to do things, but I didn't really know why I was doing them. I might do something 99 times in a row the same way and it would work, and on the 100th time it wouldn't work out. And oftentimes I couldn't figure out where I had erred, what, what, was go what had gone wrong. And so uh, I realized that the, the, the typical education um, of a cook, of a young cook, is, is sort of, it's not that different in a way from being in the military. It's sort of, well, this is the way we do it. Well, okay, how come this is the way we do it? Because I said so. Um, or because it's worked that way before, or that's just the way it is. And that's, I think that's useful early on in your career so that you don't sort of, so that progress can occur, so that you can begin to learn things, and you don't get bogged down with too much question asking. But as I got older, uh, I wanted to, to, to know the answers to these questions. I wanted to understand what was happening while I was cooking. And I, d I realized that I didn't have a complete education. Again, I knew how to cook things, but I didn't know why I was doing them. And so I, I opened the restaurant as a place where I could continue my culinary education, where I could uh, begin to ask, the look for answers to these questions, so I, where I could begin to understand how to cook, understand what was happening to food as I cooked it, as I chopped it, roasted it, boiled it, smashed it, whatever I did to it, understand what was happening to it in order to do it in a better, more informed way. Um, because uh, it, you know, it, it turns out that cooking is certainly some, uh, some physics, certainly some biology, but it's a lot of chemistry. And this will come as no shock to anyone. The average cook knows very little about chemistry. Uh, so, I, I, and I didn't set out to become a chemist, but I set out to sort of understand a little bit more about what was going on. And so that was a primary function of WD-50, was, was a, uh, setting up a place where myself and my staff, and ultimately uh, you, the diner, if you wanted to, could continue the culinary education, the culinary journey, and that happens on a number of levels between, between what you eat and the, and the environment in which you eat it, the architecture, all sorts of things. But I wanted it to be an ongoing place where we could learn and we could grow, uh, because it, it, it turns out that we, particularly as cooks, know, know very little. Um, and so I, I had to start to, to go outside of the traditional areas for answers to my questions. And I, and that is how we began to discover things like Miklu. We, we realized that we knew nothing, and so we needed to go outside of the traditional formal education of a cook, go out in, into other disciplines to find out what was going on. Because the answers are out there. They've been out there for some time. They've not been part, again, of the traditional education of a cook. So we wanted to seek out these answers. And in doing so, we opened up this tremendous, awesome, exciting, and terrifying sort of uh, book of information. And, it, and, it, and, and in comes this, 
these, these answers to our questions, these explanations that really make, make cooking interesting because again, there, there, there's no right or wrong way to cook, but I think there's a more or a less informed way to cook. And that's simply what we're trying to get at at WD-50, is trying to be a little bit more learned about cooking. We don't, I mean, we know more today than we did yesterday, and we know more five years ago than we did 10 years ago, and we, you know, about 30 years ago, we knew nothing. And, and so we've only sort of just scratched the surface We've been cooking for a long, long time, but we've been sort of cooking in the dark. We've been cooking without really knowing how we're doing anything or why we're doing it. And so my hope is that at WD-50, um, through developing relationships with, with people like, like Harvard and, and, um, and uh, other people that are experts in other fields outside of cooking, that we can uh, further our knowledge, our understanding of what's happening in food so that we can make better decisions. Um, oftentimes, the approach at WD-50 comes under uh, scrutiny or under fire saying that you know you guys are down there in your lab coats and you're electrocuting the bunnies and stuff and you're, you're taking a lot of the soul and a lot of the, the art and the fun out of cooking and I, I think it's an easy argument to make but it's not true because all we're trying to do is understand what's happening so that we can make decisions but there's still no right way to electrocute a bunny there's a lot of different ways you can do it. There's, there's never going to be one right way to cook anything. But there's, there's going to be uh, ways to make decisions along the way. I mean, he, Professor Verdine talked about poaching an egg, or I think it was poaching, or maybe you didn't spe specify. You were just talking about you know, the, the protein bonds uncoiling or denaturing as they get hotter. But there's, there's a lot of different ways to denature those proteins. There's a lot of different ways to poach an egg. There's no right or no wrong way. Um, you might like your egg poached at uh, 64 degrees for 45 minutes, and you might like your egg poached at 70 degrees for 30 minutes. And neither one is right or wrong, but it's just a matter of understanding what, how those, those variables will affect the end product so that you can make it the way you want. And I think that's really what we're about, is trying to understand these ingredients so that we can make better decisions. Because I think learning is pretty cool, and I think you know, whoever knows the most when they die wins. And so we're... <laughs> We're, we're trying to win. Um, <laughs> but the nice thing is, too, is that we'll never get there. We'll never know everything. And, and, and so, you know, if we can get this ball rolling and begin this process or somehow be part of the process that other people can pick up and continue, that's, that's really my hope. Uh, you know, uh, my, my, my wish is that when people come to the restaurant and come and work for WD-50 and when they leave, they say, you know, I knew more. I know more now than I did before. And that, that makes me feel like it's, it's a success. And... And so, so to that end, we come across, uh, we come across Miklu, transglutaminase. Well, what, what, is, what is Miklu? Miklu is a pretty, pretty cool name, I think. I mean, it's called transglutaminase. It's an enzyme. But Miklu certainly sounds a lot better and a lot cooler and a lot more evil. And, uh, <laughs> and I like the sound of it, but it also help, is more useful, ultimately, to help inform your thinking about the product. Because when you think, okay, here I have a bunch of transglutaminase, what can I do with it? That's not, that's not helping you sort of wonder what to do with it. But when you say, I have some meat glue, what can I do with it? You can start to think, well, is he, is he serious? Does he mean meat glue? And I mean, yes, you can glue meat together. You can glue most, most you know, land-based, well, not, I'm sorry, not land-based, most you know, meat, fish, poultry, seafood, all, all have enough of the requisite amino acids, which are, are lysine and glutamine. They, those two things need to be present for this covalent bond to happen, and most things have them in them. Not everything, but m most meats, fishes, poultries uh, ha have them in there, and that that is pretty fun. Um, 
and, and but it also gets your brain going like okay what can i glue what can what what can we do here i mean again perverse professor verdine talked about uh these these bonds like to stick to things that are their biological partners and i like to try to stick things together that aren't biological partners i think that that's in a way kind of fun and, and more interesting um but but meat glue was originally designed by people who not designed, it was discovered by, by the good people at Ajinomoto, and, and some of its early applications were to just take scrap meat and use it. You know, when you, when you have a piece of fish and you, you get nice portions from the head all the way down towards the tail, but as you get towards the tail, it sort of tapers. And what do you do with those flat pieces? Well, if you get two or three of those flat pieces and you take meat glue, suddenly you can stack them together, glue them together, wait for this bond to happen. It does take some time, it's not magic, it doesn't happen instantly, although there are certain ways that we've discovered that you can accelerate it. Uh, and, then, and then you have something that you know, we'll, we'll show later, for instance, this is, a, this is 10 pieces of meat glued together. Um, and, and, and that's pretty, pretty neat. And uh, it also is allowing us to cook things in ways that, that uh, are a little bit easier. You know, as things change and taper, it's hard to cook them uniformly. I think we've all had a piece of meat or fish or chicken that's, that's not cooked the same end to end. And as a chef, that's maddening because we really want you to have a properly cooked everything end to end. And we hate to see that, you, we hate to know that towards the tail it's gonna be over, overcooked and towards the head. And these are, why Miklu is helpful is, is because we can sort of create uniform portions that we can cook more evenly, more effectively. And again, we can improve uh, our, our craft uh, of cooking. It's not, it's not that I'm trying to make a jackalope, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to, although that would be kind of interesting, uh, I, I, I'm trying to, 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 to cook things in a more even way. I mean, again, I, I'm not criticizing God, the animal didn't grow incorrectly, but it's an animal, it has different parts, and it's hard to cook, it's, you know, th it's hard to cook a shoulder of, uh, of a cow or, or of a pig evenly, which is why it's either usually cooked for a really long time so that everything can break down, all the connective tissue regardless of size, or you take it and you reshape it and you can cook it evenly. And that's, that's sort of where, uh, where, where the fascination, where the interest with, with Miklu is. And this is, this is our very first application of Miklu. This was, um, you, can, you can press play again, please. This was, uh, the very first thing we did, we, we were introduced to Miklu about uh, in, in late 2003, early 2004 by Heston Blumenthal and his team at the Fat Duck uh, outside of London, a great chef and a great restaurant and, and a brilliant man. Um, you, should, you should bring him here, by the way. Uh, <laughs> you tried, okay, well, never mind then. Um, <laughs> sorry, you're stuck with me. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, he, he was the one his and his team that turn, turned me on to this product, and this was the very first application that we ever did with that. I worked for Jean-Georges Von Gerichten for many years, a great chef, who um, taught me how to make uh, a sausage out of, out of rabbit. We used to take, this is rabbit, some chicken meat, some parsley, and uh, the livers of the rabbit, and we used to take it and bind it with some egg yolk, mix it together, and we'd wrap it in, in, in little tubes of, uh, of plastic and then in foil and poach it again. So it was a uniform shape. This is why sausages are so popular because they cook evenly. Um, and, uh, and then we would slice it. And sometimes it would crumble, sometimes it wouldn't cut cleanly, sometimes it would fray. And when I got my hands on some miklo, I said, aha, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna make, I'm gonna improve on this dish. I'm gonna make a casingless sausage. And that's exactly what we did. We took 
I think 1% of, uh, of the weight of, of all the, the, the sausage mixture, added some, some glue to it, twisted it up, let it do its thing, poached it and sliced it, and you can see it's, it's very, very clean. And, and thus, uh, our relationship with, with Miklu was born. And uh, it's, it's an ongoing love affair that, uh, that has taken the restaurant to some, some great places. And um, we're going to show you uh, some, some, some recipes up there. I, I, you know, we've been talking about shrimp noodles for the last half an hour, and I, I made a sort of last-minute decision not to show the video on shrimp noodles, which I guess was a mistake. Um, but I'm going to show you uh, a number of dishes that we, we've done at the restaurant where, where we've worked with Miklu. You'll see how, we, how, it's, how it's handled hands-on, uh, and you'll also see the finished product, which I think is very useful. And, um, and then we're going to go on to some, some sort of 2.0, 3.0 applications of Miklu, and then hopefully, uh, if any of you are still awake, we can ha maybe have some questions. Um, are we, can, can, can we go a little bit forward to... Uh, to can we go to, to, what is it, 10? Can we go to 10? Excellent. We're going to show you a, a, a steak dish that uh, is actually at present not on the menu, but was on the menu uh, up until very recently. Uh, there are other, other versions of, of uh, other types of steak uh, that, that are at, on the menu right now at the restaurant. And we're going to show you this one which is a, uh, uh, it's a flap steak, which is a piece from the diaphragm of the animal. We're going to show you how we take that sort of flat piece of meat, which is normally very difficult to uh, make a video of. I'm just kidding. Um, it's <laughs> uh, difficult to work with because it's flat, and um, you can't... Uh, uh, you, you can't get a, a piece of meat that's that flat off. Oftentimes it's used for things like fajitas or other things. It's, it's cut very thinly and, and, and sliced and seared. It, but we're going to uh, take it. Uh, yeah, that's perfect. Just leave it there uh, if you want. Or, or maybe just go forward. Just to that, Those are shrimp noodles, by the way. Uh, <laughs> we're not going to talk about that. M moving on. Um, this is uh, a, wabu a Wagyu flap steak, like I said. And the first step to, to gluing this, this steak together is to is to get the the enzyme in solution, um, and it is uh, water soluble. Uh, in this case, we there are different types of the enzyme. Uh, there are about five different kinds that, that the manufacturer has, depending on your application. Some are some are uh, only sprinkle coated on. Some are mixed uh, into slurries. Some are specifically for yogurt. Some have higher concentrations of the enzyme. It depends on on your application. Uh, They've really refined the different types, which is very interesting. In this case, uh, we're using what's called GS, and this is a mixture of the of the enzyme, a little bit of maltodextrin, uh, sort of to keep it free flowing in the package. It's a type of, of sugar. Um, some uh, phosphate salts, which raise the uh, the pH of the enzyme. I mean of the solution, I'm sorry, not the enzyme. They raise the pH of the solution so that when it's blended with water, it doesn't begin to find, it doesn't begin to set. Th it will stay fluid for a really long time. If you take a different type of them, you mix it with water, you have to work with it very quickly before it becomes kind of like a gluey, muddy, sticky mess. In this case, because of the presence of the phosphates, the pH is high enough that the enzyme is actually inactive until it touches the substrate of the meat, lowers the pH, becomes active. Here what, what Tom is doing, and you'll have to forgive the uh, very high-end uh, green painter's tape on the lower left-hand side of the machine. You'll see that later on we had the presence of mind to remove it. 
uh, I apologize. But in this case, what we're doing, we've, we, we had to really blend it or shear it very, very aggressively to get it into, into the solution, and there's a lot of bubbles. And we learned the hard way that just taking it as it is with what appear to be very tiny bubbles causes a problem because that's actually air, and it gets in, the, in, in between the bond, and the bonds are not as strong, and the meat is uh, prone to sort of peeling apart, and that's kind of gross. Um, when, when if I sent you a steak that was kind of talking to you and wagging its tail, and that's, that's not so nice. So what we do here is you can see we've, we've used the vacuum machine to just uh, pull, pull the air out, and you get this sort of almost caramel-colored liquid. And then um, here is the, uh, the uh, Wagyu flap steak. Again, this is from the diaphragm of a cow. Uh, and conveniently, if you're to go to uh, Wikipedia and look up Miklu, there is a picture of a flap steak. I didn't know that until just recently. But that's a, a, a nice coincidence. But here, Tom is taking the, the, the flap steak, which he's cut. We've removed a lot of the silver skin or connective tissue, as we were discussing earlier, because we're not going to cook this at a, at a long enough temperature or time temperature sort of graph to convert that collagen into gelatin and make it, make it friendly in the mouth or, or, or edible. So we want to remove most of it. So we just have pretty much the meat here. And he's brushing it with... Uh, with the enzyme, and, and he's putting the two halves together, and then you're going to see he's going to wrap it up, apply a little bit of pressure, and again, it's a function of, of time that, that for this reaction, for this bond to form. There are, there are ways to speed it up. Um, <coughs> if we had thought to show you the video of the shrimp, you would see that we cook the shrimp at a specific temperature because it's the temperature at which the enzyme is most active and you get a little bit of heat setting from, from the, the temperature and it, it helps the process speed up a bit. Um, if only Tom really worked that fast. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, you see there what, what he's done is he's, he's taken it, applied, applied the glue, um, and uh, wrapped it up and we've let it sit overnight. Again, Overnight is ideal, four to six hours is probably the minimum, although we had a rather un unplanned experiment in the middle of service the other night where we were able to get satisfactory results in 30 minutes. Uh, <laughs> but that's not the kind of working conditions we seek out. It was a little bit stressful for all involved. Um, so, uh, well, let's not talk about it. Um, <laughs> you, you can see, again, to the, to the untrained eye, there isn't much of a seam. There is certainly a seam you can see. I mean, it's a giant close-up of it, but to the, to the untrained eye, I don't think that you can see that seam quite so much, and again, that's nice. We try to line it up in such a way that, that the, the grains are all running the same way. And, and again, ultimately, what this allows us to do is to take a piece of meat that was difficult to get nice uh, and, and, and red and, and medium rare or rare or medium even and, and look nice, and in this case, we're able to see right there, you can't really see the seam at all, and I think that that's, that's fantastic. Um, and that's simply a steak that's been, been uh, uh, roasted the old-fashioned way. There's, there's not a lot of, uh, of, of sort of high-tech cookery uh, after the fact. We just roasted it the old-fashioned way, and, and you get a real nice round eye of flank steak. And uh, flap steak, I'm sorry, we also do it with flank steak. Um, but I think that that's neat because we, we created a cut of meat that didn't exist before. And we made the, the, that cut of meat much easier to cook, much easier to serve. We made, again, we made an improvement, I think, on something. 
I, I don't want to sound like, you know, nature's, again, nature's not wrong. It's just sometimes not convenient. And we made it a little bit more convenient and a little bit more practical because, and at the end of the day, that's what restaurants are all about. It, it saves us money. It saves us time. It, it makes, it makes cook the pre preparing of your meal a lot, a lot easier. And there was actually a lot of meat glue on that, on that dish. The garnish, which is right here, you'll see is barley. Um, and uh, what was interesting is that, again, there's, there's lots of, of things, meats, fishes, and poultries, shellfishes that have a lot of, or a sufficient adequate amount of, of lysine and glutamine present in them to, to form this bond. But what a, what a, we started thinking, well, what about things that don't have um, <coughs> enough of those things? Can we introduce them and get a bond? Can we make a bond where, where there wouldn't normally be one? Uh, and, and we looked around and, and we, we discovered, we, were, we were found out that, that gelatin, which is rich, I think mostly in glutamic uh, glutamine, I think it's high in glutamine, it might have some lysine as well, I'm, I shouldn't, I shouldn't I, I, it probably does, but I shouldn't really be saying any of these things. Professor <laughs> um, I, Verdine is shaking his head, no, 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 don't say that. Uh, so we realized that Miklu and gelatin are unbelievable friends. They love each other. They make a fantastic bond. Gelatin and the enzyme are great together. So we started thinking, well, what could we do uh, with that? And, and the first thing we did was we took uh, soybeans, pureed them, and then separately we took some, some gelatin and some of the enzyme, which you can see here, Tom has taken some gelatin, he's dissolving it in water, and separately he's gonna dissolve some of the enzyme in the water, and that's exactly what we did. And then we combined that with pureed soybeans we spread it very thinly, allowed the reaction to take place, and we, it wasn't vegetarian, mind you, but we had ostensibly a noodle, a sheet of pasta made from fresh soybean. The idea was to play off, I don't know, for those of you that know what Yuba is, it's they, they, you heat milk up, uh, soy milk up, and pardon me, and a skin forms, and you pick it up, and you, you let it dry slightly, and it's very, very interesting uh, texture, but it, it's made from dried beans, and we, we sort of wanted to make a fresh soybean sheet, and that's what we did, and then, Rather than pureeing something with the, the meat glue, we thought, could we bind something in it? So we took quinoa the first time, and um, uh, we just cooked some quinoa and mixed it in that slurry of gelatin and, uh, and, and meat glue, spread it very thinly, and we put it in the fryer, thinking that all hell would break loose. And it turns out that when you say that those bonds are strong, no kidding, they're really strong. I mean, the fryer is a nasty place. And we dropped, we dropped just sort of irregularly shaped pieces of this grain bound with, with the enzyme into the fryer, and they got crispy. And it was like this aha moment, like, oh, my God, really? This, is, this isn't supposed to happen. And we thought that it was going to be, you know, hospital burns and that sort of thing. And, and it turned out to be a huge success. So in this case, um, we've taken a, a similar approach. We've taken barley. We've cooked the barley. We've mixed it with some... Um, some caramelized uh, malt powder that's t typical in beer making. College students know a lot about that. Um, and uh, we've mixed the enzyme and, and, and the gelatin into that solution, bound, it with, bound the um, barley with it, and we're gonna pour it out, allow it to, to set over time, and then you're gonna see that, that what happens once it's cool, and uh, you'll have to forgive, Clay likes to write notes on his hand. You'll see he's got a note on his left hand there. I'm sorry about that. Um, you, what, what happens is that you, you'll see that it, it, you've got this great, beautiful cake from barley, um, and, and, and it's, 
we can put it in the oven, we can heat it, we can deep fry, and you're going to see what, what he's, he's doing. He's going to break it into little pieces, and it has this beautiful sort of knobby look to it. And then just imagine that he puts it on that tray to the left, and we put it in the oven for five or six minutes, and then you're going to see him hit it with the blowtorch, which is exactly what we wanted because we wanted some of those, those caramelized Maillard reaction flavors because that, that's a nice complement to, to the beef, we think. And, and again, beef and barley and malt, it's all, all pretty tasty combination. But it was really kind of unbelievable to us that we could get how strong this bond was and the things that we could do with it. Um, and, and the fact that it held together. And, and, and now, again, it's not vegetarian, and I'm sorry for those of you out there that are thinking that there's all sorts of wonderful vegetarian things that are going to come of this, but there's gelatin in there, and there's no good substitute that, that we're aware of yet. I mean, it's an interesting project to talk about. But look at that. I mean, there's not even any sinuresis. There's not any weeping. There's no liquid coming out of there. It's really uh, amazing. And, and, and again, Professor Verdine talked about how strong these, these, these bonds are. I mean, he mentioned nuclear energy, and we don't have one of those uh, <laughs> in the restaurant. <laughs> But 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 so there is is uh, is what we think kind of almost a 2.0 application of of meat glue, putting it in a place where it doesn't belong. Um, not I mean not that gluing you know chicken skin to a salmon belongs, but <laughs> really really putting it where it doesn't belong in a way that 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 is is creating something not novel or goofy, but actually something delicious and something that that when you take a second and think about it makes makes good sense. Um, so here is, uh, here is a dish with codfish uh, served in a broth with a puree from made of, of coconut milk and freeze-dried peas and a, and a broth made from uh, carrot-flavored dashi and a pasta that is, is got nori, uh, nori seaweed rolled into it. It's a very Japanese-sounding dish that no Japanese person would ever endorse in any way <laughs> at all. But but it starts with with Roxanne, who unlike Clay doesn't write her notes on her hand; she tattoos them. <laughs> you can see in a moment. Um, Roxanne uh, uh, takes takes basically two cod fillets, strips them down, and and lines them up. You can see again she's using the same solution, the same slurry that Tom made earlier in the day, and it's still very liquid, very fluid because because of those phosphate salts in there keeping keeping the, uh, the pH rather high. And she's going she's gonna to brush. This is an entire fish, two sides of codfish. And she's going to brush it fairly liberally with, with this solution and roll it up. And again, what's really nice is we've got all the grain and the meat running the same direction. So it comes time to slice it. We're cutting through the grain, which is going to make for a better mouthfeel for you guys when you cut through the flesh of an animal. It, it, helps, uh, it helps make it easier to chew, which is nice. Um, and it, it's also going to give us a very uniform shape um, uh, for portions. There's no waste here. I mean, again, you saw that fish. It tapers quite a bit towards, towards the tail. Cod, codfish have gigantic heads, and the, the flesh around their, their collars and necks is very thick. And, and now we're able to sort of equalize that and, and, and get a shape that allows us to, to, to utilize the entire piece of fish uh, and to cook it in a way that's very uniform. Uh, for, for all involved, it's sort of a win-win situation. Um, and you'll, you'll see here, she's just laying them all out. And it, it's actually a lot of fish, but she's going to manipulate it in such a way, give that bond time, time to take place, and you're going to get a really nice, beautiful filet. 
Um, it's not it's not dissimilar from from the meat. In this case, the, you know the meat was like this, and these these are sort of lined together and, and, and stripped up. But it's a it's a very similar similar situation, and I think again, uh, you know. It's, there's nothing wrong with fish and the way a fish grows, and obviously it needs the bones and everything to swim, but when you take it all out, <laughs> when you take it all out and, and, and roll it up in, in a lot of plastic wrap, <laughs> um, you, get, you, get a really nice, uh, you get a really nice portion uh, of fish, which, which you'll see in just, just one second. So again, that's an entire, that's an entire codfish that's, that's been allowed to, uh, there, there she's just, Piercing it to, to get the air pockets. Obviously, there's there's bound to be a little bit of air uh, between a, a, as we're pressing it. We're not using a machine. This is there's the human factor here. So she's just letting trying trying to do the best she can to remove all the air so that when it we cut into it that there are no uh, no air pockets, and and you can see that uh, it's 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 fairly successful. And again, I think this is a pretty pretty exciting thing for for the average cook to to think about like when you can start. You know, these are very basic applications, the, the steak and the fish, and, and sort of what people had in mind wh when, when they brought, brought Miklu to us. And the, the barley is a bit more of an advanced application, and, and I think we have a couple other fun ones here, and you're going to see another vegetable application in a minute. Um, but, but really, that's, that's an effective uh, use of it. I mean, that's, it's, I, I don't want to say perfect, because that would go to Roxanne's head, but it's it's pretty well it's pretty well done and 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 again it allows us to sear that piece of meat or poach it or whatever in a very uh, controlled and now uniform way so uh, we can we can screw it up evenly um, uh, and and again this is served with a dish of um, uh, a puree made from carrots and coconut and um, uh, some carrots that are sautéed in a little bit of uh, Sugar and butter and uh, fish sauce, and then the the pasta is topped in it, and it's and it's made with a broth. Again, you get some some better shots, shots of it. I mean, anyone that knows what a cod, you know, if I were to if I were to show that to you, if that was in the deli counter, you would know that that's not the way that cod grows. But, <laughs> and you might now speculate, oh, wow, I wonder if they're using if they're using meat glue uh, to, to to create that, and and you'd be be it'd be a safe bet. And so there's there's uh, there's you know our codfish dish. Um, and uh, the, the, the last thing I'd like to show you, the last video I'd like to show you is, um, is our one on radish sheets. And again, this is taking, last year we, were, we had made some, some things, some apples, I believe, was it, was it pears and apples or, excuse me, pears and green apples that we had, um, again, started thinking how could we glue things together that don't have the necessary constituents for that to happen. And we began we messing around with carrots and celery, apples and pears, sort of old friends, but none of them, t to my knowledge, have, have enough lysine or glutamine or any lysine or glutamine in them f for the Miklu to find a way to make a reaction. But we started to think last, right before we were here, was we, we just brought some sort of testers, that if we impregnated the fruit with the gelatin, that maybe we could dust the enzyme on the surface and, and apply a lot of pressure and get a bond to take place and, uh, I I and, and hopefully grab the two things and not simply just be a bond that existed between them and then they would then peel apart. And that was some of our early problems was that it wouldn't, uh, th that it would form a beautiful bond but the two, the two things wouldn't hold on to 
uh, each other. They would just be on either side of this of this gel. But but we've been working on it a bit, and here we have uh, radishes that are um, again they don't have any gelatin in them. So we're going to put the gelatin in them, and then we're going to take a little bit of RM, which is sort of the workhorse of the um, transglutase fa transglutaminase family, and a little bit of TI, which is their extra strength version, in equal parts, and uh, and really just dust the surface of the of the radishes with the enzyme, and and then get a bond that takes place because the gelatin we're going to use the vacuum uh, machine to actually impregnate ostensibly the radishes. We're gonna we're gonna put I mean, impregnate the radishes with gelatin. We're gonna put gelatin in the radish where, where they it didn't belong so that we can get that reaction. And so Brian is going to, uh, you know, there's a lot of space, there's a lot of air in, in, in a, your average radish, and we're going to fill that, fill that space with a little bit of, of this water that's rich in gelatin. Um, it's so much cooler the other part, but everyone gets excited when it does that. But <laughs> the, the, the gelatin is... Um, so, so there you have radishes that are that are sort of drunk on gelatin, and <laughs> Brian's going to drain drain off the excess um, and add a little bit of of the enzyme, uh, and then he's going to lay it out and apply some pressure, and and you'll see that that the radish sheet will will be effective. Um, this was Brian's very uh, very very first time doing this just the other day. He's a brand new employee, so he forgot to mix those two containers. They're actually supposed to be. Mixed, it's equal parts of of, of the two items, um, but <laughs> he he forgot to do that. He was excited, um, and we just sort of went with it. Like I said, he's he's brand new, and he's he's a great guy. Um, but but you can, wh what he's doing is adding a little bit of the enzyme to to the mixture. He's going to lay it out on on uh, plastic wrap uh, and put a little bit more on top, and and and. You know, you use the word sticky, and that we're really we're, we're using the, the the sticky nature of these bonds to to I, what I believe to be great effect. So here he's he's just taking a little bit of uh, of plastic wrap, and he's going to lay lay them out in a single layer, very very thin, thinly sliced radishes, and and you know, uh, uh, again we're 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 able to play up the the sort of thermal irreversibility of these bonds and and. And heat these sheets of radish, which which is great because we don't we don't sauté it, although we could, but we just kind of warm it up. And uh, he's a superhero, as you can see. <laughs> um, we we just heat these radish sheets up and and enough so that they uh, they still retain a little bit of that crunch from a raw vegetable, but they get warm. And you, if you did this with just gelatin, let's say they would just sort of slide apart. But because we've infused the gelatin into the radish and then put a little bit of the two types of Miklu on top, um, we're, we're able to get that bond. And what, what Brian forgot to do is he's supposed to take a dry brush afterwards and brush off all the excess, but he was very enthusiastic. And <laughs> th th this is why we bought so much Miklu this week, because <laughs> so nor normally I assure you it's not quite uh, so aggressive in the, mi the Miklu department. Um, but that, that is uh, then pressed overnight and allowed to sit so the reaction can take place. We try to put a minimum of, say, 10 pounds on that so that it can really, you can sort of force the issue, uh, for lack of a better word. And then, then when it's done, the next day, 
you're left with, uh, with this, which is pretty neat um, and, and pretty, pretty durable. And that can be, that you can do a lot with that. So that, <laughs> that that's, again, that's pretty neat. It's, it, it's just about like where, does, where can your head go with it? And there you can see we've cut it up thinly. And so that, that th those are some of, some of our, our, our work with, with Miklu, with our, sort of our most recent effort here from, from Chef Brian. Um, and again, I've, 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 brought, I've brought some of it so you guys can see. Um, it's, pretty, it's pretty neat. Uh, I, uh, I'll come over here and, and you, can, you can see these were, these were made yesterday and you know, it's, it's, it's pretty cool, it's pretty strong. I don't know that we want to pass around a radish. <laughs> it's gonna get weird somewhere up in there. Um, but, you know, you can, you can really start to think about some, I don't want to say sky's the limit because we, we still are working with this sort of thing, but you can really get some, some interesting uh, ideas about what, what's possible and, um, you know, you're, you're going to have to trust me when I tell you that this can get hot because it it really, it really can, and I think that's that's ultimately what's what's interesting about this is is being able to to use it as sort of in the in the, in the it's a 1.0 version, which is uh, uh, you you want to put the uh, the slideshow on. Um, that's that's it for radish sheets. I've got about a dozen images that are um, dishes over the years at the restaurant. That, that all have Miklu in, in some way, shape, or form that we're just gonna sort of put up there as a loop to hope, hope, hopefully um, distract you from me. Um, so, uh, so, so again, this, this, this is something that we're pretty, pretty proud of and pretty excited by. I think, I think it's, pretty, it, it's pretty neat um, in, in, in how it works. And again, what, what's possible? And to that end, um, we have some other items here. This is, uh, this is tofu. Which, which is very, very high in, in the necessary sort of protein and enzymes for, uh, for Miklu. Miklu's very happy with tofu. But uh, when you blend tofu, obviously it's, it's, a, it's a set, it's a protein gel, and when you blend it, it can't re-gel. Um, there, there are not too many things that, that have that, 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 that property. There are a couple of things I know of, but not too many. Tofu's not one of them, so when you, when you blend it, it, it's done, but if you reintroduce some, some Miklu into it, you can reset it. So that opens up a lot of possibilities as to what you can do with it. And this is something that we no longer serve on the menu, but it's something that I really like. This is, this is um, Campari tofu. We've taken tofu and we've taken some alcohol. Campari is a, a delicious uh, liqueur. We've reduced it down and added it to the tofu. Um, and, and we've got tofu again. And you can control whether you want soft tofu, firm tofu. And that's, I think, um, pretty interesting and again just sort of ex ex helps makes you think uh, again apologies to the vegetarians because I know you like your tofu but sorry um, th this is delicious um, and pretty neat and, and and it's a great flavor there's a th lots of directions you can go with that um, we served that I think with uh, with uh, with eel that's right with smoked eel that that's a chicken right there that's a cold fried chicken um, and it's all leg meat that we've uh, set set with uh, with the glue into a terrine, and then we've cooked it, and then we've we just bread it and fry it briefly, and let it get cold, and we serve cold fried chicken with um, a little bit of buttermilk ricotta and caviar, sort of the high and the low. It's having having fun with leftovers. 
uh, in that case, you guys I know are all having caviar on your fried chicken, I'm sure. Um, but but, th but that's a good one. Um, he here is another example of 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 taking something that, that doesn't have enough. I mean, nuts are, are high in protein, but I, I don't think the right kind of protein. So we, we got excited that nuts might have something to offer. Uh, so we started blending nuts with, uh, with the enzyme and nothing happened. And uh, so then again, we brought the, the idea of the gelatin and the enzyme combination together. And, 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 and here we've made uh, ostensibly uh, sheets of peanut butter um, which, which is fantastic. Um, and then we take the peanut butter uh, sheets and we cut them, we just cut them into noodles. And we serve, we serve that with beef, uh, sort of a, a little a fun riff on pad thai, like beef and peanuts. Um, again, these can be hot, which is, which is pretty neat. You can saute them and we make a peanut sauce, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that's, that's another fun, fun application. I'm sorry, I meant to put them on the plates, but the black is kind of sexy, so. <laughs> I'm going with it. Um, and this, this is the last, the last guy I, I'd like to show you guys, and then um, hopefully we can all go out for drinks together. Um, this is a, a skirt steak, a lamb skirt steak, and um, are you talking to me? Oh. <laughs> um, Lamb skirt steak's really, really very thin, very, very thin. And um, we called our, our butcher up and said we wanted uh, lamb skirt steak. And he said, uh, okay, but nobody buys that from me. You're the only person that buys it from me. What are you going to do with it? And, and, you know, I told him that I was going to stack it up 10 high and glue it together. And he got really excited and sent me a bunch of it. And, and, and that's, that's really what we've done here. You're, this is going to, you're going to have to get nice and close on this one. This is, this is. This is, ca you can or cannot. This is 10, this is 10 piece, 10 high, 10 high lamb skirt steak that um, has been mixed with, with, uh, with GS and then pressed together over time. And, uh, and, and, and that, I mean, again, there'd be no way to get a piece of lamb skirt steak. This cut of meat does not exist anywhere that I know of, except for at Harvard University. Um, <laughs> And, and, and again, I, I think that this is, this is a lot of fun and it, it, it opens up the possibilities of what you can do with it. Like again, this would, lamb skirt steak probably is mostly goes into, again, things like fajitas or ground meats, things, things where it, it, it's too thin to be to practical. And then here we have uh, what I think is a really fun, nice uh, use of, of, of the meat glue. Uh, those are sh sheets of, sh oh no, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the TV. And, and those are, those are sheets of shrimp. We made cannelloni. We, we, we blended the shrimp and spread it out. Made cannelloni. That's skate fish. Um, skate is a very irregular shape, and we're able to make uh, sort of blocks of skate. We, we call it a skate cake. We have sorts of or all sorts of weird terms for our, the food we make, but we cut it into blocks and, and sear it and saute it in a way that's, that's very practical. Um, and, and again, uniform. So, so that's, that's all I got, guys. I want to say thank you again to everybody.
I, I'd certainly, if we have time, love to encourage a, a dialogue of, of, of some kind. Um, Yes, indeed. D does Miklu have a, a taste? Um, well, no, it does not have a taste. Um, although it's interesting that the professor said that a lot of these ends, these bonds have a lot of flavor. These proteins have a lot of flavor. Miklu does not have any perceivable flavor. Um, if anything, overuse or misuse of it can can end up in textural perceptions, but I don't think that you will ever be able to taste meat glue in something. You may notice that something doesn't feel the right texture. For instance, uh, we've used it on very thin things like sardines. And, and, and we used to take sardines and shingle them together so you could get sort of like, like, a, like a shingle of sardine. <laughs> and we realized at the next day that it didn't, it wasn't that you could taste the meat glue, but the sardine had taken on a texture because the, the bond had passed all the way through. It wasn't still on the surface, passed all the way through. And so it had given the, the, the sardine a texture that was not, it wasn't necessarily unpleasant, but it didn't feel like a sardine normally feels. And sometimes they use that to, to, to the you, people use that aspect of meat glue to their advantage. Sometimes it's part of the snap in a hot dog. It's there on purpose. Uh, it's... But no, I, I'm getting off topic, I'm sorry. No, it doesn't have a, a perceivable uh, flavor. Uh, yes, I was won wondering, um, you probably, compared to people in the food industry, order fairly small amounts of this stuff. Do you find interest from your suppliers, like Ajinomoto, in collaboration on finding new applications for this? Because you know, in the meat industry, people who are using this to make hot dogs or chicken nuggets or whatnot, will be ordering it by the, say, 55-gallon drum or 2,000-pound tote, and you guys are probably ordering small lab samples and so forth. Are they interested in collaborating with you? Uh, they've been very supportive with us over the years, yes. I mean, we, y you're right, we're, we're not, we're not, we don't represent a very large market share, but we do, they are interested, I think, in creative applications, and there are a lot of creative applications for me, glue from uh, field dressings for the military to chocolate to cheese making to all, all, all sorts of really cool things that, that I didn't even come close to thinking of. Um, but we, we get great technical support from them. They've been very helpful with us and uh, very, very supportive. And I, I think that the chefs represent a, a, a small niche market, but certainly a, a, a prestigious market in a way. Yes. Uh, well, thank you very much. I think if uh, Dr. Frankenstein was here, he would be very excited. Um, <laughs> no, but uh, have you considered using any of the vegetable um, or gelatins that are derived from seaweed or something? Are those would those be possible? Have you tried them? Um, uh, there would there would be no way that I know of to use an, an agar or a carrageenan or a gelan, um, to name a few to get the same results. Um, all of those things melt at a much lower temperature, for sure. Um, they don't have the same flexibility. They don't behave the same. We do a lot of really neat stuff with all of those ingredients that, that, that I just mentioned. Um, but I don't think, we've not, I'm not saying it can't be done, but I've not been able to achieve a uh, heat-stable noodle using a, a, like a polysaccharide or something like that. I've not been able to do that.
Yeah, it seemed like you were using a lot of plastic for a small amount of food. I was just wondering if you're looking at more environmentally friendly ways of doing that. <laughs> no, sir. But like fixturing that type of thing, you know, where you uh, could bring it into the home or bring it into a commercial situation? Uh, well, we're always looking for ways to be a little bit more responsible as individuals. I think the use of Miklu is, is in and of itself a way of being more responsible and putting less things in the trash. Um, you, you know, it's probably, I'm not going to defend anybody, but it's a fine line between making sure that you don't get in trouble for that, there being air pockets in the glue and, and, and you know, me not going too crazy over how many rolls of plastic wrap we have to pie each week. But yes, we're always interested in ways that we can be more responsible for the environment. We can be more cost effective. We're, yes, I mean, I, we, I, you know, that's a lot of, for what it's worth, that's a lot of orders of codfish. It was, that's not like two cod that she wrapped up like a mummy. So uh, I, I, I hope that we're, we're, we're doing the best we can to balance that out. I was just wondering if you could describe the procedure you make the peanut noodles with. Is it similar to the, the barley or? It's, uh, yes, the, the peanut noodles, uh, we, 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 we melt down some peanut butter, uh, some peanut oil, and then we, we, we introduce, we, you need a little bit of water in there, um, and so we get some water in there with the gelatin and the, 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 the TI and the RM, we use two types of, of Miklu in that particular application. We put it together in a food processor and we just puree uh, is a food processor or a blender? We put it in a blender? A food processor, yeah. We, we, we just sort of puree it until it's nice and smooth. Uh, and then, and then and pour it out between two sheets of plastic, only two sheets of plastic. <laughs> and, and, then we, and then we roll it uh, very thinly and, and let it sit over time. Um, and, you know, it, it, it does have a little bit of sort of defined specks in there, but I like that. I, I, it, 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 does, it does add a little bit of that natural organic nature to it. I don't want it to look exclusively like it came out of a vending machine. I want it to look a little bit like there's a human human touch. Very impressive. Uh, how long did it take for a codfish ulad to bind together? I'm sorry, how long? It took uh, for the codfish. Uh, again, I, if you could wait overnight, I think that would be ideal. And I, I would say you'd be almost guaranteed to have success. But we've, under extreme circumstances, uh, four to six hours is probably as far as I would go. Like I said, we accidentally had a, a, an experiment over the weekend that was under half an hour, but nobody enjoyed the process. It was not, a, you know, in the lab under controlled conditions. It was under extreme duress. But I'd, I'd, I'd say, I'd say, a, a, you know, overnight, and and you'll be in good shape. Is um, is this something we can make at home? And if not, have you uh, do you have any thoughts on how to make it more accessible for? Home cooking purposes? Can they make Miklu at home? Can we buy Miklu? If, if you can buy the enzyme, sure. Well, you mean, can, can, can you get the enzyme? Yeah. Like, can you buy, can you buy Miklu? Yeah, and which, like, which tool do we need? Put it into Amazon search engine, Miklu, it comes okay. right up. <laughs> go, go figure. But you can buy Miklu from Amazon. Okay. You should store it in the freezer because uh, it, it is alive and, and, and it likes to be cold when it's not being used. So I would keep it in your freezer um, in some sort of a Ziploc or something like that. It comes in a powdered form. But yes, you can get it and you can experiment with it. Absolutely. I would recommend maybe, you know, so it would be helpful to have a scale so that you can think about concentration levels, percentages. You very rarely need more than, than three quarters to one percent by weight in a, in a, in a, in a mass. 
Hi. Um, I was wondering what your most epic fail was for trying out meat glue. <laughs> mm. I'm not telling that. <laughs> All right, your second most epic fail. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, that's part of the beauty and part of the frustration with it. Um, there are people in the restaurant who are better at working with... This is, this is great. We lost two of them over the weekend because they didn't stick together. Um, and, and that led to our 30-minute you know, experimentation. And, and there are, are variables that even we don't understand. Some people in the restaurant speculate that the temperature of the meat uh, has something to do with how well the reaction is. I don't, I don't know about that, and I, I can't. That would be more a matter for, for the professor to talk about. But, um, I, you know, I could come up here all day and tell you about my epic failures. That's not something that I, I, I'm short on. Uh, um, but, you know, again, we trying to glue things that, that um, didn't necessarily taste good together, combinations that didn't work, um, not thinking the whole thing through, you know, I can glue a, a, a duck to a, a lobster, no problem. <laughs> but, and even if you thought it tasted good, it texturally it might be weird because, again, there are muscles and they contract and they don't contract the same way at the same temperature. So there's lots of things to consider and sometimes an idea sounds good. Um, peanut butter noodles was really neat, but I then, uh, you know, the medieval beast was not. And so um, there, there are lots of things that this, this, you know, th this is fun. This is um, uh, this is a steak tartare, and we just put enough meat glue in the tartare for it to hold itself together, but so that when you ate it, it didn't feel like it was bound up meat. That it sort of it doesn't crumble. But how is it that you're able to balance it upside down on itself when steak tartare can't really be formed? There are times when people get the ratios wrong and it does taste kind of bouncy, a little bit weird. The sardines, as we talked about, I don't think that that was a successful application. We ultimately discontinued that almost almost right away. Um, it's it's a pretty neat product and it's a pretty fun product, but it's not magic, you know. And and again, we want to make food that tastes delicious. That's our sort of our end game. And and along the way, we do have some dogs that that. That, that have happened, you know? Very cool. Um, on the lines of combining different types of meats together, have there been any successful, you would say, uh, combinations of different types of meats you guys have glued together? And then just a random question, um, is meat glue healthy or unhealthy, or does it really matter? Um, well, I, I, I think it's probably better for the professor to talk about the health aspects of it. I mean, have there been great combinations? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, I mean, putting, putting like crispy chicken skin is kind of a universal favorite. People love crispy chicken, and it's nice when you put it on a piece of shrimp or you put, you imagine, fish skin is also really nice. Uh, and and I li we've had some fun sort of swapping the, f you know, things. I think that chicken sk fish skin on chicken is delicious, but I didn't serve it to anyone because I thought it would be a stretch. And, you know, I, and it reminds me to your question about epic failures. Oysters were an epic failure. I wanted to make a terrine of oysters because I don't like oysters the way they are. And so I wanted to change the shape because that's the only way I can eat an oyster is if I change the shape. I don't like the texture of them. Um, and I've ne not been able to get that to work. And I think that, that that would be an interesting idea if there was a way to more effectively predict what would and wouldn't actually bond. And I'm sure that there is, but that's not a question for me. 
too much salt? Yeah. Is that what it is? Maybe. Yeah. For us, it was it had to be the water. Yeah. We thought it was just too wet that they would mm. slide apart. But uh, would you like to speak to the health uh, aspects of it? I mean, I know a little bit about it, but it's I'm a naturally occurring protein. It would be equivalent to eating whatever is actually making glutaminase. So it gets into your stomach. It gets broken down into amino acids, and it's food. Yeah, I mean, your 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 intestines, I it's think, kind of have at it pretty aggressively and, and and break it down in a way that it doesn't stand a chance. Yeah. It's not banned in Europe. That's not true. It's not banned in Europe. There are some people that have put forth the notion that uh, there's uh, a way that adding meat glue to things that have gluten in them and, and people that have a can have a gluten allergy can have small amounts of gluten. Um, it they, it's not that they can have zero. They can have small amounts. I believe even a celiac can have very low levels. But there are there there are some people that say that meat glue can react with gluten to increase the level, the, 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 the allergen in the, the gluten. But there seem to be some conflicting stories on, on that. Um, and I, again, I don't think that the celiacs are, are avid uh, test group candidates for <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, are there any food safety concerns with the um, bac potential bacteria on the outside of something like the, um, the steak you were using that you're putting that in the middle, and then you're only cooking it to medium rare. There, there are, and that's why I think it's about having responsible um, uh, processes along the way about you know handling the meat responsibly. You saw those people were wearing gloves. Um, there's, it's about yes, li like anything. I mean, there, the same, the same way it's it's dangerous to have somebody handle raw fish when they're making sushi and then hand it to you to eat. Um, but yes, you are introducing bacteria potentially on the inside where it might not get to the right temperature. That is an issue, and that is something we try to tr try to be aware of. And and uh, I, I believe that if we practice responsible um, hygiene al along the way, that we can greatly reduce those risks. Um, uh, you know, there are a lot of risks, obviously, that one. Assumes when going out to eat, and, and and certainly I think that you raise a good point, and we try to be responsible about it. You know, I I don't, you know, I'm afraid to say this. Knock on wood, we have had, to the best of our knowledge, no no issues with with that particular uh, product, or as a result of using meat glue, and like you said, sort of turning the bacteria on the inside out. S so tofu is uh, is derived. Uh, generally from soy milk. I was wondering if you have tried u infusing soy milk into your vegetables in order to um, in order to create a or create vegetable sheets. And as a more silly question, can you actually glue your hands together with? <laughs> it's not a silly question. I, mean, I think it would be awesome if you know you passed out at a party and woke up like that. <laughs> I think that would be that would be so cool. But unfortunately, it does not. It does not work that way, you know, or I might be walking around like this. Um, <laughs> but uh, we have tried putting soy, soy flour, soy beans in things in the hopes of getting, getting a, a, a reaction. Not, uh, it, it, it's not been, we've not been able to get a bond that's strong enough, which is why we've had to sort of augment that with gelatin. That even a fresh soybean on its own didn't, with just the, the 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 enzyme did not. I mean, I was I would love for that to happen because I would love for there to be a a, a a vegetarian alternative. I mean, I went 
when I first found out, oh, it works with lysine and glutamine, I went right down to the vitamin shop and I bought a bottle of powdered lysine, a bottle of powdered glutamine, uh, and I thought, I'm a genius, because <laughs> I'm going to make vegetarian noodles and, you know, some Swanson or somebody's going to call me and I'm, you know, I'm going to be a billionaire, and of course, it's not that simple, and otherwise, Ajinomoto would have done it, or somebody else would have done it a long time ago. Um, there, there, there's just not, uh, you, you can't, again, I'm not sure why you can't introduce lysine and glutamine in a powdered form and get, b and, and that's, that's sort of above my pay grade, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, you don't have to go too far into the process, but where does the enzyme come from? Say, how is it harvested? Uh, it's, I mean, it comes bacteria. from bacteria. Yeah. I know it's come from a bacteria. I mean, I, originally it was, I think, bovine when it was discovered, but um, it's, it's harvested from bacteria at this point. Yeah. I mean, it's, a it's somewhat proprietary, right? But it's harvested from bacteria. Yeah, but I guess it's uh, originally from... It's, it's made by recombinant DNA technology, which is really now used to make many drugs. So I mean, we have it in our bodies. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's core, you know, when you go to the, you know, not to oversimplify it, but when you, when you go to the gym and you sort of tear a muscle lifting a weight, right, isn't that how your body sort of starts the recovery process to a certain extent? In the, the manufacturing of this kind of thing is incredibly well worked out because there are many drugs that are marketed that are, that are produced in bacteria, for example. So it's, um, it's highly regulated, it's done in, uh, safe manufacturing facilities and things like that. It comes from a, a th commercially, I'm, I'm fairly certain that Ajinomoto derives it from a bacteria. Sort natural sources of it, but I think uh, Ajinomoto's screened many different forms and their favorite forms they produce in bacteria. Yeah, for a long time I believe they were using bovine, but now yeah. they're using bacteria. Furthering your education with these products and some of the techniques you're using, do you worry that in any way you might be sort of stunting the growth of young cooks who sort of fall in love with these things too quickly and aren't learning how to properly roast a chicken like you did and want to come work for you, I don't know, too early or something? Or what are you looking for in young cooks who want to come work for you? I'm just looking for people with an open mind, um, you know, people that, that are willing to think, um, that are willing to think, sort of, period. Um, do I do I think that it uh, it's a danger that maybe somebody might skip steps in life? Yes, I think that that's something that I would discourage. But um, it's not like if you come to WD50, you won't have to roast a chicken or fillet a fish or everything doesn't come in that little bag I just cut open. You know, it it, <laughs> it comes it comes whole and we break it down and fabricate it. There's a lot of classical cooking technique that happens at WD50. It don't don't be confused and think that. Um, that, that you're going to miss out on, on that stuff. You're hopefully going to be uh, see some things. You, you would see it maybe only a, a handful of other restaurants around the world, but you al there's also quite a bit of, of, of the old blended in with the new, and that's, that's uh, firmly rooted in, in, in my approach to cooking, mixing both the old and the new. I don't, I don't think that, I don't encourage anyone to skip steps, but I don't think that, that we're, we're doing that at the restaurant. How cost? Okay. Um, how cost effective has the um, introduction of meat glue been to your restaurant since you seem to be using a lot of the less desirable cuts of meat? Uh, 
less desirable or maybe more affordable. Um, there we go. It's <laughs> probably a nicer way of putting it. I don't know that there's a less desirable cut of meat. I mean, I think that th what's interesting about animals is that they have a lot of flavor to offer for different reasons in different places. Um, I didn't know that the diaphragm would be delicious, but it, but it is, and it's particularly delicious when you can, can, can make sort of a, a chunk out of it. Um, and I don't have the actual hard data on specifically how, you know, from an economic standpoint, how, how beneficial it's been to us. But it, I can certainly say that we've just reduced the general amount of waste, um, particularly with, with seafood, you know, um, quite, quite a bit. Um, I, I'm sorry I don't have hard, hard data on that, but it, it is very useful in, in, that, in that respect. You just have to trust me on that.